0: Welcome to Boston Venue, the channel podcast. This is the true and complete story of the legendary Boston music club, The Channel. From its shaky launch in one of Boston's grittiest neighborhoods through the glory years of beer-soaked rock, punk, and reggae shows from an incredible roster of artists, and its demise at the hands of local mobsters after a spectacular run. A demise that ultimately led to a murder that would take 25 years to solve. This podcast includes explicit language and violent episodes. No sugarcoating and no bullshit. Let's rock. On the last episode, we followed the channel's early trials when rebellious bouncers, music bigwigs, and a mafia capo all tried to insert themselves into the equation. Boston before the Big Dig was a city split in two, literally, by the central artery a monolithic strip of concrete and steel that was ugly, dirty, and noisy. The harbor side of the artery was home to desolate piers and sketchy neighborhoods with little direct connection to the rest of the city. The channel was in that part of Boston.
1: Boston had a segregated mentality with a closed-minded attitude and neighborhoods that rarely crossed boundaries. Blacks lived in uh, Dorchester and Roxbury, and whites lived in Beacon Hill, West Roxbury, Charlestown, and South Boston. Many Bostonians preferred it that way.
0: South Boston, which included the Fort Point area, was one of those places experiencing growing pains. Territorial and boundary disputes between neighborhoods reached their peak with the onset of busing, when high school students were forced into places where they were not always wanted, often resulting in tense confrontations. The newspapers were full of ugly images of a divided Boston that wasn't responding well to change, and just as things around the city were getting shaken up, So was the music scene. As Boston was being transformed, popular music, long dominated by good old rock and roll and disco, was being challenged by the likes of punk, rap, and thrash metal.
1: So Boston had a very vibrant underground music scene back then. The kids usually stayed to themselves very underground. They hung around in punk clubs and uh, skate parks. A lot of their concerts were in uh, VFW halls and Knights of Columbus, um, sometimes even uh, church basements. The places, uh, you know, when they needed the money, uh, they would, you know, book, you know, alternative uh, types of shows like punk shows. The kids loved it because they could go there in the afternoon. They didn't tell their parents where they were going. Uh, and you'd see all the skateboards parked outside, and they'd be in slam dancing and enjoying their very loud, very raucous, almost violent music.
0: Hardcore emerged as a formidable genre, with a tight-knit community that offered a reliable audience. The music was rebellious and confrontational. Local bands like The Freeze, D.Y.S., and Gang Green led the charge as the ranks of Boston hardcore loyalists grew. It was serious music, and some of the fans and musicians were fiercely serious too. The punk subculture called straight edge, or SXE, or XXX, even went as far as renouncing booze, drugs, and cigarettes, and embracing a strict adherence to clean but very loud living.
1: There were bands like Minor Threat, SSD, that wouldn't play generally in a place that sold alcohol. They weren't in it for the money. They wanted their music to be heard. It was important for them that there was no alcohol sold at their shows. The ticket prices had to be kept low. It had to be all-ages shows. We had no liquor sales and sometimes it was a struggle to even uh, break even, but we did the shows because the music uh, really needed to be heard and it was only once a week.
0: Bostones, later renamed the Mighty Mighty Bostones, came out of that punk scene in the early 80s as a hard-driving punk ska band, evolving to be a major crossover band with a uniquely Boston sound. They're credited as one of the progenitors of the genre of ska punk and the creators of its subgenre, ska core, which mixes elements of ska with punk rock and hardcore. Dickie Barrett, who would go on to become the lead singer of the Mighty Mighty Bostones and eventually make it in Hollywood as the announcer and band leader on the Jimmy Kimmel Show, was a former member of the Boston Hardcore band, Gang Green. I
2: remember uh, going in there for uh, matinee hardcore shows, Minor Threat, things, Circle Jerks, all of those, Black Flag, all of those great shows, and various other shows. We went to shows at night as well
3: and loved it.
2: I thought it was both thrilling. I had a great time. I also found it at certain times scary. We, we were in there to you know challenge just about everybody and everything. I think that famous cramp show where I was accused of getting in a fight with Flux and Terrier never really happened. And then I remember one time being there for bad manners. Me and my friend, Matt Badger, who played keyboards in another ska band, got thrown out and they said, don't ever come back. And, you know, we said, fuck that. And we climbed down the side of the building and tried to watch the band and standing on a broken pier or wharf or whatever was going along the side of the building. It was sort of magical. It was sort of this just this awesome combination of street people, whether it was the you know street punks that were attending the show, and then and it was just in that tremendous neighborhood. I played my very first punk rock show, so uh, you have the channel to blame for me and my career as well, because I was in a band called the Impact Unit that opened up at that insane uh, Misfits show. That was a tremendous show. There's a great picture of, of the. Black flag showing it with a pig pile on stage and all of the kingpins of Boston Hardcore, including like Paul Punky Richard, Al Barrow, Al Lethal from SSD, and just in this big kind of pile up. So I think the bouncers have me by my feet and Henry has me by my arm. He's trying to like keep them from dragging me out. A lot of great, good black and white pictures from, I think, Phil and Flash was Shooting away at those shows. And another great picture that I think it hung for years in a Walker's Western wear of just all of us standing out in the parking lot, you know, skateboards and bald head. And all of this, you know, listening to your podcast comes back to me. Hello?
0: like hardcore punk gangster rap was emerging a polarizing youth driven genre that was gaining a foothold in boston's live music scene and like all underground scenes bubbling up gangster rap scared their shit out of parents and holy rollers everywhere but as rap was ascending Politics in Boston were changing, as Southie Boys Mayor Ray Flynn and city councilor Jimmy Kelly came to power. Politicians were constantly trying to insert themselves into the channel's programming decisions. And now Jimmy Kelly was a frequent caller, regularly complaining about some of the bands. He once suggested that a scheduled hip hop show at the channel should be moved to the notorious red light district directly abutting Chinatown called the Combat Zone, where the usual entertainment consisted of all nude reviews and lap dances in back rooms. Jimmy
1: Kelly didn't want a band like 2 Live Crew in his neighborhood. They were anti-police, they swore on stage, they were pretty offensive. So he was a classic, nimby kind of a guy. He didn't want any shows that he didn't approve of in his neighborhood. And that included any shows that had any uh, controversy. You know, he was particularly not enamored of rap shows. So he was a regular caller. He was pretty vocal, let's just say, and he would state his opinion very strongly.
0: Another constant thorn in the channel's side was longtime Boston City Councilor at Large and former head of the licensing board, Dapper O'Neill, whose hero and ex boss was the colorful, infamous Boston politician, power broker, and ex convict, James Michael Curley. O'Neill took pride in his social conservatism. His 28 years in the Boston City Council were marked by his open racism homophobia, and misogyny. Now, Dapper had his eye on the channel. In one episode, Sean McNally, a channel manager at the time, was called to testify at a licensing board hearing that Dapper had requested.
4: We had hosted an event at the channel called the Dangerous Dames No Bozo Jam, and it was essentially a beauty contest on stage. Supposedly, somebody made a complaint that one of the ladies on stage had exposed themselves, exposed their breasts, and we were called before the licensing board to deal with that. We're in this stale, musty room at City Hall, and then the legendary guy himself, Dapper O'Neill, struts in, and he basically questioned myself and a couple other channel employees about what had happened that day. As the assistant general manager, I was obviously on site. I paid attention. I saw nothing of the sort happening. But the claim was, and it was read by Diane Monica, who was in charge at the time of the mayor's office of consumer affairs and licensing, she read a statement that said, contestants removed their bikini tops and bottoms. And the contest judges allegedly touched the contestants' breasts, hips, and buttocks. And, and again, to me, that was completely laughable. But it came down to what he said, she said, essentially. And they slapped us with a five-day license ban, which was a very heavy penalty to pay. And was over Halloween weekend. So suffice to say, that was the last No Bozos Jam the channel hosted. The suspension was successfully appealed by channel management.
0: And the five-day closure never happened.
2: off the uh. wall these places time moves slow and i'm wondering where to-
0: arenas as well. WBCN, which long dominated rock radio in Boston, was being challenged from an upstart called WCOZ. And the channel was right in the middle of it. Carter Allen remembers the radio wars.
1: You know, we we battled each other, but, you know, we loved each other. I mean, you know, I love some of those jocks that worked over at WCOZ. I mean, Parento, Mark Parento worked over there for a while. Jerry Goodwin worked over there. So there were some good friends. But meanwhile, you know, A battle is a battle, and competition is competition, and ratings are ratings. So you kind of have to
4: take the gloves off every once in a while.
0: And there was more competition taking direct aim at BCN. Stephen Mindich and the powerful Boston Phoenix were jumping into the rock radio fray. In 1982, Mindich bought a small radio station in Lynn called WLYN-FM. He quickly upgraded the signal and broadcast equipment and went on to create a hugely influential alternative rock station called WFNX. Which, despite its relatively limited signal, gave BCN a run for its money in the 80s through the mid-90s. Brad Mindich remembers his father looking to get into the radio business.
5: The, the creation of, of FNX, which started, and actually I, I have a very vivid memory of this, which is, which is interesting, is I was very into music when I was younger, obviously still, still am, and I remember him coming into my room, and I think I was probably 12. And he said, "I think about buying a radio station, and I'm trying to decide whether the music should be country music or this new wave music." And nobody really knew what new wave music was. And I said something like, "Well, I don't know about country, but I guess this other music maybe." Now, from there, his vision for that was, and it, and it was called from the very beginning, Boston Phoenix Radio. And then, in terms of the music, You know, WFNX built an enormous following based on the content and was able to really hold its own against some of these gigantic radio stations that had far more power, but really did not have the vision that that my father had.
0: BCN's battles in the radio war showed that Don Law wasn't invulnerable on the airwaves, and he was starting to lose his grip on live music as well.
1: National shows became a little easier to get as we got more media and uh, the agents realized that we were there to stay. But for the most part, local bands provided bread and butter when we needed them on a weekend. Bands like Human Sexual Response, Till Tuesday, Del Fuego's, Boston's, Extreme, The Lemonheads, uh, The Fools, a lot of others. Locals were really very strong in the uh, mid-'80s.
0: As the channel continued to prosper, bringing people to an area of Boston they would not usually go to, more booking agencies paid attention and began to show some respect. Agents started to
1: pay more attention to us, and we started to become recognized as you know mid-level promoters. A lot of the acts that had played the channel, or even some that hadn't, wanted to be in a different venue than a nightclub. A lot of them thought that they had graduated the nightclub scene and wanted to be in theaters or other venues. Uh, we'd get some calls from agents, and they'd have acts that they said would be a little bit bigger than the channel, and then we would have to try to find a venue to put them in. So the city was pretty much tied up. Uh, Dong Law had the major rock and roll venues pretty much to himself. So we had to find alternative venues.
0: Warren Scott, longtime channel booking agent, remembers when things began to change.
6: As the years went on and Things were going well at the channel. All the agents across the United States were uh, giving us the avails. These agents knew that we were competent promoters, and they actually liked working with us because we were, I don't know if you want to call it the underdog, but we were the alternative promoters in town, Uh, not the traditional uh, Don Lars and so forth. So they started to give us different availabilities of bands that made we worked at the channel multiple times and they exceeded that kind of capacity and they needed to play in venues that were bigger than that. A great example of that is the English Beat had played the channel multiple times. They needed to go to the next step and Law was doing that with his clubs, Paradise, and putting them into the Orpheum we stepped up to the plate and did the same thing. We took the English Beat and we brought them over to the uh, Walter Brown Arena, which is at BU on Commonwealth Avenue. So the English Beat played there with R.E.M. as the opener. The show sold out. You know, it was a wonderful show. Everything went well. I can remember R.E.M. wanting no color lights for their show at all, just all whitewash, which was I thought was strange at the time. We paid him a whopping sum of $100. English feet headline that date. We did that multiple times. We did that with Peter Tosh, brought Peter Tosh over to the castle, the replacements, brought replacements over to the opera house, which was a 2,600 capacity, I believe. And that also sold out. The agents knew at this point that we were good at what we did. They would trust us with their attractions, and we promoted them uh, not only at the channel, uh, we brought them to other venues, Rogers in the
0: channel.: The winds of change were blowing hard in Boston, and they were causing more disruption than the giant glass panes from the John Hancock Tower had when they came tumbling to the ground a decade before. In politics, the airwaves, music, even in the mob, they were all being challenged from different quarters. And the channel? despite steep odds against its survival, the club was actually thriving. The channel was able to straddle the line between popular culture and the in your face, underground fuck you attitude that pervaded the emerging musical genres that were taking Boston by storm. The competition it fostered in the rock and roll scene in Boston did more than keep the business solvent. It changed the music scene for good. bulger.
1: Whitey never made a move on the channel. We often wondered why. After all, gangsters uh, loved nightclubs and restaurants because they were uh, the perfect place to launder money. Large sums of cash could be deposited to banks. There was a rule that uh, any deposit over $10,000 in cash had to be reported to the IRS. We were exempt from that rule. Maybe he didn't want to jeopardize his uh, gig with the FBI working with uh, crooked agent John Connolly to try to take down the Angulo gang. Or maybe, as the FBI agent that brought to justice suggested to me one time, he said, maybe he just didn't notice you guys.
0: Boston's underworld was in crisis as longtime crime organizations were dealing with betrayals, lengthy prison sentences, and untimely deaths. Corrupt special FBI agent John Conley, with the help of mob informer Whitey Bulger, was in the process of taking down Gennaro Angulo and his brother Donato, also known as Danny. Also helping Conley was Stephen the Rifleman Flemmi, another notorious gangster that would eventually plead guilty to killing 10 people. Flemmi also worked with Cadillac Frank Salemi. So, back to the Anjulos. After years of trying, the FBI finally managed to indict the Anjulo brothers in 1983 by successfully bugging a bar they owned. This effectively ended their leadership of the Boston Mafia. Caesar Anjulo, Danny's son, and a regular patron of the channel, remembers the North End and the Fort Point area in those days.
3: Yes, I am Danny Angulo's son. I'm proud to uh, be the son of my dad, uh, one of the Angulo brothers out of the North end to Boston. Quite honestly, my experience uh, being an Angulo and having been brought up in the North End tradition uh, was an amazing thing. Rules were rules. Good guys were good guys. And the North End was, uh, as it's been put, the safest place in all of Boston. A woman could walk the streets at any time of night or day and not ever worry about being bothered. And that's what the Injulo brothers did for the, the city of Boston in general. Everything was uh, status quo. <laughs> uh, an amazing way to grow up. Uh, the North End was, uh, they call it the safest square mile in the world. And the brothers were all brought up uh, within the North End. They were all born in the North End right on 95 Prince Street. And uh, were uh, regular, so to speak. They knew everyone in the North End, and that's uh, how the North End kind of worked. We used to call it the little old lady security system. The truth was going to beat you back to the office by a half an hour, so you never really got uh, into too much trouble. (laughs) The channel, it was just an amazing venue. Some of my most memorable moments in the channel were uh, spending time with Stevie Ray Vaughan uh, not too long before he passed away, being on stage with Alvin Lee, groups like War hanging backstage with the Stray Cats, Brian Seltzer, the B-52s, and the list goes on and on and on. Never mind the local acts, Charlie Farron Balloon, John Butcher Axis, Luna, Berlin Airlift. It was just an amazing place, an awful lot of fun. We were always welcome, and it was probably one of the best-maintained clubs in all of the city of Boston. So the
0: two guys that emerged as the major combatants in the struggle to control the Boston mob after the fall of the Anjulos and the death of Raymond Patriarca Sr., were Vinnie the Animal Ferrara and Cadillac Frank Salemi. The channel owners managed to fend off Vincent Ferrara using a defensive legal strategy. Salemi, on the other hand, used a different behind-the-scenes approach.
1: I first met Steve DeSaro in 1980, when, when, right after we opened, and he showed up to say congratulations. He was a fellow club owner. He owned two small clubs. One was in Austin called the uh, Club Soden. He also owned... Uh, a bar on uh, Canal Street near North Station. After that, he rarely showed up. I mean, he had come in once in a while. He started coming in uh, on a much more regular basis uh, shortly after our encounter with Vinnie Ferrara. DeSaro was a real estate developer, and he was very successful uh, until uh, the late 80s when uh, the bottom fell out of the condo market. Uh, he was involved in some kind of a big uh, development, and he lost a lot of money. And he was almost bankrupt and he was looking for new opportunities. He never really seemed to be interested in uh, the band that was playing. I mean, he once asked me if we do well with a band, why not book him for a week or two weeks at a time? He, he, he really didn't understand the concept.
0: Stephen DeSaro was the son of Albert DeSaro, longtime personal driver of Raymond L.S. Patriarca. Patriarca headed the New England branch of the Cosa Nostra until his death in 1984. Albert Big Al Desro was a small guy with a fierce loyalty to his boss. Stephen Desro was introduced to the Patriarca crime family at a very young age. In fact, Patriarca was his real godfather. When he came of age, instead of falling into a life dominated by the hidden world of numbers running, drug dealing, and murder for hire, he chose college, law school, and real estate development. Desro had been a successful businessman, also owning two small nightclubs. He had a large family, including five children, and lived in a Spanish-style mansion in Newton on the upper part of Commonwealth Avenue. Peter Boris got to know him as an occasional early evening patron. Sauru came in occasionally with another club
6: owner from Somerville. He always looked good, he, you know, really looked sharp, drove a nice car, very generous, buying drinks and tipping the bartenders and the waitresses. You know, He liked to talk about uh, the phases of a club operation. He did say that he went to law school, but he didn't take the bar exam. He was always paranoid, always thinking that everybody around him is uh, an informant, or he would point at certain people and claim that they may be an informant or they're watching him.
0: Patriarcha associate Thomas Tommy Hillary introduced Stephen DeSaro to Frank Salemi sometime after Salemi's release from federal prison. The rivalry between the two camps was destined to play out in a blood feud that would put the channel in their crosshairs.
2: Hello? Checked the clock when I got home and realized I wasn't
6: alone. Uh-huh. Sight
2: for hours by the window wondering where did you go? I couldn't get or sleep at all. Took the pictures off the wall. Haste the place, time was slow and I'm wondering where did you go?
0: Boston venue the channel, punk and rap. Is it rock and roll or is it revolution? Music featured in this episode provided by the Mighty Mighty Bostones. Police beat and where did you go? Intro music, John Butcher Axis. Contributing storytellers in this episode were Dickie Barrett, Sean McNally, Carter Allen, Brad Mindich, Warren Scott, Peter Boris, and Cesar Angulo. Boston venue, the channel story, was conceived and created by Harry Boris. Executive producer, David Ginsberg. Produced by Chachi LaPrette. Written by Harry Boris. Contributing writer, David Ginsberg. Edited by Christopher O'Keefe. Recording engineer, Tori Lamb. Audio production by Tony Baglio and Dan Tebow. Graphic designer, Lisa St. John Bennett. I'm your narrator, John Laurenti. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends to check us out on thechannelstory.com or on Facebook at Boston Venue, The Channel Podcast. Leave your comments and share your stories.